If you guys got your Bibles, we'll be in Isaiah chapter 37. And as we continue our journey through, let's remember what we're doing. We uh, Basically, we see in the first half of Isaiah, so we're basically in the first half, what what people consider the first half. I, I know there's 66 books, but still first half till after Hezekiah's deal. And when we look at it, here's what we're getting. We're getting... This vision of the brokenness of people in the beginning of Isaiah and God's vision of what we can be. And then this question goes out, right? The question of, well, how do I become, how does this Jackie, this Isaiah become that Isaiah? So he tells in chapter six, right? In chapter six, first five chapters, he's pointing out all the, the problems, all the failures. Chapter six, Isaiah stands before the Lord and says, woe is me, right? I'm a mess. God, I'm, I'm broken. I don't know what I can do for you. And the Lord takes a coal from the altar, touches his lips, and purges his sin. How does this Jackie become that Jackie? How does this Isaiah become that Isaiah? When God forgives our sin. When God, when God purges our sin, when God covers our sin, then we're able to be transformed in, in the book of Romans. It says not to be conformed into the image of this world, but be transformed to the image of God by the renewing of our mind. So we have this idea of God purging, God cleansing Isaiah. Now he, he widens his scope, okay, from the personal to the nation. Got a nation of Israel. Nation of Israel, not the nation God wants it to be. Kind of like the United States, not the nation God wants it to be, right? So, how does this one become the nation God wants it to be? So, he tells us in Isaiah chapter 7. In Isaiah chapter 7, the the kingdom of Israel is afraid to trust God. And God says to King Ahaz, Ask me a sign and I'll show you, I'll prove to you, that, that if you'll follow me, it can be... Uh, you can have, the nation can be the nation we want it to be. And Nahaz wouldn't trust him. So, God said, well then this sign will be given unto you. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a child. We have the <clears throat> proclamation, the prophecy that lays out for us. The, ultimately, in the future, the birth of Jesus Christ, Messiah. And that Messiah, the power of Messiah to bring the work of forgiveness in individual lives is what's going to unite nations or divide nations. It's what's going to cause uh, Israel to be the Israel she needs to be one day when she sees Jesus Christ as her king. But she's struggling right now. She's having a hard time trusting him. So the rest of the chapters, all the way up to chapter 35... Is God saying, trust me, don't trust Egypt. Trust me, don't trust all these other things. Trust me, don't trust how many horses you got. Trust me, don't trust how much money you got. How many of us know all the money in your bank account can disappear in a minute? Yeah, for real. You you can even think, oh, I'm set. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, you're not set no more. Just like that. So God's saying, don't don't trust all that stuff. That stuff's fleeting. Trust me. So King Ahaz has a son. His son's name's Hezekiah. Now Hezekiah is the king. And as the king, Hezekiah is facing what King Ahaz was so afraid of. 
The Assyrians are right outside the door. Last week we saw the Assyrian guy come up, his, the Rabshakeh. He's like the mouthpiece for Shenekarib, which is, they got a mouthful of crazy names, right? Rabshakeh and Shenekarib. Makes me hungry. <laughs> so, so Rabshakeh, he says, he says, look, basically, there's nothing you can do. No God can save you. We're going to burn you down unless you surrender. And even if you surrender, we're pretty much going to burn you down. So you're doomed. So that's the message last week. That was the word of the enemy, right, to, to God's people. Just like the word of the enemy comes to us. Just like how Satan will lie to us, how we'll start to think in our own minds, I'm doomed, there's nothing <clears throat> that can happen. Nothing good can come from this. And you may be right in the sense that there's not going to be a miraculous deliverance. We're going to see one tonight. But next week we'll see not one. It's interesting. In Hezekiah's life, you have this miracle deliverance, and then you have God saying, it's your time now. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that next week when we take a look at it. But right now, the word comes to Hezekiah. Hezekiah the king, he's afraid of this nation. 185,000 troops outside his wall wanting to take over. And Hezekiah, he's... He's got the news. The news has come to him, it says in verse 1, chapter 37. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself in sackcloth, and went to the house of the Lord. <clears throat> so there's something we want to glean from this. When we face those crazy, worrisome moments in our life, first thing he does is he tears his clothes. That means he's, he's okay with expressing his anguish at the the horror of the situation. It's a bad situation, right? The, the best you can hope for is to die in the battle, because if you don't, it's going to be really bad when the Assyrians get you. So he tears his clothes, a sign of, of sorrow, of mourning, of fear, of anxiousness. They tear their clothes. The next thing he does, as king, <clears throat> he takes off his crown, takes off his robe, takes off his fancy clothes, he puts on sackcloth. What is the point of sackcloth? Sack, if we all wear sackcloth, what does that say? We are all the same. We are all broke, dirty, humble. We don't got nothing special. It's a statement of humility. It's a statement that says, you know, all this, all these things that I think elevate me above everyone else, I'm a king, but we're all in a mess here. So he puts on sackcloth. The next thing that they would do typically is, is sit in an ash pile or put ash on his head to further <clears throat> um, illustrate the idea of, of how dejected, how far down uh, they've come. But here's what Hezekiah does. He humbles himself. He goes ahead and expresses his sorrow and his, his mourning. <clears throat> and then he goes to the house of God. Where's the answer at? For 35 chapters, God's been saying, I got the answer, come to me. I got the answer, come to me. Now here's the trick. We Sometimes we go to God, but we still want our answer. God says, I have the answer. He doesn't say he has your answer. Your answer might be, your desire might be, I want it to go away. God's answer might be, I'm going to make you strong enough to go through it. 
The answer may not be the same, but everything you need for whatever the thing is, is in the house of the Lord. It's wherever God is. It's in his presence. So Hezekiah, he goes, <clears throat> humbles himself, and he goes to the house of the Lord. Um, and then as he comes to the house of the Lord, you know, I'm reminded there's <coughs> hundreds, literally, of scripture that talk about our help being found in the house of the Lord. But one of my favorite ones is Psalm 122.1 where he says, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Let's go. Everything's crazy. Everything's sideways. What are you going to do? I'm going to go to the house of the Lord. I'm going to go praise God. I'm going to go try to go someplace where I feel close to him. Close to him. Experiencing what he has for me. And so in verse 2, it says, He sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah. So he says, okay, I need a word from God. And if you were looking for a word from God in the Old Testament, you went to the prophet. And usually the prophet wasn't very far away, because the prophet was pretty constantly talking to the kings about, hey guys, 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 get it together. Hey, God's going to judge if we don't get our act together. So everybody knows where the prophet is. Even the wicked kings know where the prophet is. They just don't call him. But they know where he's at. So Isaiah goes, he's in the house of the Lord, right? He's, he's there in sackcloth. He's calling on the name of the Lord. And he sends all his delegates. And he says, look, if I'm in sackcloth, you're in sackcloth. Okay, none of us are holding on to our our titles or our fancy robes or our fancy stuff, put on sackcloth and go see Isaiah. We need to hear, we need to see what God has to say. Because here we are, army's outside. It's going to be a bad day when they start beating on the door. So <clears throat> what, is, what does God want? What does God have for us? So they send him. And they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, but there's no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So here's their message. Isaiah, brother, we got a problem. Dark days. Big problem. Not sure what to do. The second point he has in this, in this request, we don't know what to do about it. We have no power. We're, we're right at the point of childbirth, but no strength to finish. We can't, there's nothing we can do. 185,000 against us, we're going to lose. We can't defeat the mightiest army in the ancient world. So we need prayer. We need to know what God wants. We need to know what God wants of us. So therefore, <clears throat> Isaiah, lift up your prayer for the remnant. We're still here. We're here in Jerusalem awaiting the response. So Isaiah gives a response. He responds to him in verse, uh, in verse 5. So when the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said, Say to your master, thus says the Lord. How many times have we heard this? Do not be afraid. Don't, don't be afraid. 
I love I love all the songs that are that are out lately. I love the song "Fear's a Liar" because you know it is right. You don't have to listen to fear. Fear is always wrong. In a person's life, we have the ability to react in one of two ways every time something comes before us. We can react in faith or we can react in fear. And fear will be wrong every time. So the first message, every time someone stands in front of an angel, every time it seems like God begins to encourage his people, he starts with this idea. Don't be afraid. What is it they can do to you? What can they do? They can take all your stuff and kill you. So what did that do? See, death is the doorway to, to Christ. There's, there's no power in death. What did they take away from you? What did you lose? Even, even if the, the worst things happen, what have you lost? What did Job really lose? When you read the book of Job, and you look at all the things that Job lost, what did he really lose? He really lost stuff. But he didn't lose nothing else. Did his children die? Yeah. So absent from the body is what? So are they really lost? They may be lost to us for a time. But is it, do, you, do you honestly believe that when people die, you never see them again? That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we still have that connection. We're still, we're still there. We're still, we still have a hope. So the army's out there, you're, you're anxious and you're afraid about a lot of things, but you don't need to be afraid of anything because there's nothing that they can do. And on top of that, God is able to deliver you. True or false? God is able to deliver you. And ultimately, this is what Isaiah wants them to understand. So he begins with, don't be afraid. Because of the things you've heard, the things they say they're going to do to you, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. So keep in mind, when the prophet spoke, he's speaking for God. He is like the the voice piece for the Lord. So when Moses was upset, when the people were complaining about him, you remember what God said to Moses? Moses, why are you mad? They don't hate you. They hate me. It's not about you. It's about me. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. God says, this is, this is my battle. This is my fight. You don't have to be upset. You don't have to be angry. We don't have to defend the Lord. He is capable of defending himself. And almost 100% of the time, if you face a situation and you get frustrated or angry, you know the first thing that happens? Your IQ drops like a lead ball. You can't think. You don't have responses. Why? Because your fight or flight has kicked in. And your fight or flight is either saying, punch him in the nose or get out of here. Right? It's certainly not saying, what would be a good response to that question they just asked? No, I'm just mad. We don't want to be angry. 
We should be able to respond. We should be able to stay on an even keel. We should recognize that God is the defender. We don't have to defend God. Let God do the work. That's what he says in verse 7. Look, God's got this. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. He says, look, Shenekarib is never coming in this city. I don't care what he says outside. He's never coming in. I got this. I got it. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be worried. God's saying, I have this. And then he provides a rebuke for Reb Shekha. He says in verse 8, The Reb Shekha, he returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Tirhaka, king of Cush, that he had set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you will say to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, Don't let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem won't be given into my hand. So he has a little problem with another king, and he has to start diverting his attention toward this other this other battle. And he sends a messenger back to Jerusalem. And tell Hezekiah, this don't mean anything. But God already told him from Isaiah, he's not setting foot in this city. He's not coming in. But he says, you tell Hezekiah, this doesn't mean nothing. This doesn't mean you're going to stop me. This doesn't mean anything. I'm coming. I'm still going to be there. So in verse 11, Behold, you have heard what the king of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. How shall you be delivered? So Rabshakeh is saying, Look, we've wiped everybody out. We're going to wipe you out too. Have the gods of the nations been able to deliver them? The nations that my father destroyed, <clears throat> Gozan, Haran, Reseph, the people of Eden, who were in Telassar, where is the king of Hamath and the king of Arpad and the king of Sepharvaim, the king of Hena, or the king of Eva? So verse 14. So Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it. So Isaiah told him, not going to come. He has a little skirmish he's got to deal with somewhere else. So he diverts his attention over there, Shenekarib. And then he sends a letter back. Look, just because I'm ignoring you guys for a minute <clears throat> doesn't mean I'm not coming back. Everybody tracking? Now I'm going to come back. I'm going to put you down just like I put everybody else down. So Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messenger, read it, went to the house of the Lord, and spread it before God. So he walks into the house of the Lord, and he takes his letter, <clears throat> and he opens it up, and he lays it out, and he says, God... This is what he says. Whose battle is it? The Bible says that the battle belongs to the Lord. It's not our battle. What do you think you can do? I think sometimes we think if we, <clears throat> if we make all the right choices, then you get the right outcome. If I do, if I make all the right decisions, so we put all this weight on ourselves. If I talk to the doctor and the doctor says I'm sick, and, and if I make all the right decisions, I'm going to live. But if I don't make all the right decisions, I'm not. Whose battle is it? The battle belongs to the Lord. 
It's his battle. Who's the healer? God is. Who do you think taught men medicine? You actually believe they just figured that out by rubbing plants together? <clears throat> the Bible says, the Bible lays out for us, right? The idea, the concept that, that, that wisdom, all, every good and perfect thing comes from where? From the Lord. From the Lord. God has shown it. We have to be able to trust Him and say, you know what? God's got this. Whatever's going to happen. Whatever happens in this thing. So we take the letter, we open it up, and we say to God, look what they say. Look what they say. I've done that in my life. I opened up a letter from the Marine Corps and it says, look. Marine Corps says I have HIV, God. What do you say? That was a long time ago. More than 30 years. That's a long time. The battle's the Lord's. Back then, I could take all the medicine they had in the 80s. They didn't have very many. I could do all the exercises, take all the vitamins, do all the stuff that they said to do. But from where I was standing, the end result was still the same. Everybody who went to that hospital with me died. Everyone. I watched them all go. The exercise, the running, the vitamins, the pills. Back in the 80s, they weren't helping. They didn't have, they didn't have a very good grip on it. I laid the letter out before the Lord and I said, this is your battle, not mine. I can't do nothing about it. If I'm supposed to die, then I'm supposed to die. If I'm supposed to live, then I'm going to live. But it's yours. That's what Hezekiah does right here. He opens that letter up and he says, God, I can't do nothing. I can't beat this. I can't defeat this enemy. I can't figure out a way around it, through it, over it. So it's your battle. What what are you going to do, God? So Hezekiah, he lays it out to him. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts. God of Israel, that I love that phrase, O Lord of hosts, by the way, just in passing as we go over it. It's Yahweh Sabaot. It's uh, where you get the idea of God of the angel armies. That's what the phrase Lord of hosts means. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. Now, a lot of people, times, another side note, people talk about angels. There's a lot of different angels that are mentioned in scripture. Cherubim. And seraphim are both the same word. They come from two different languages, but they mean the same thing. It's a throne guardian. So the cherubim were the description of the angels that are always beside the throne. So if you see Ezekiel chapter 1, when you see the, the Lord, uh, uh, the Lord of the storm, God as he comes on his chariot to, to Ezekiel, or if you, uh, anytime you see them, the cherubim, they are throne guardians. Those are the angels that are always guarding the throne. So when you, when you looked at the Ark of the Covenant, what was significant about it? You had two what on the lid? Two cherubim, right? Facing each other. So if God dwells between the cherubim, what is the Ark of the Covenant? 
And it's the throne. It's the place where God is, right? Where the blood is sprinkled. Where Jesus Christ would offer the ultimate sacrifice that would purge the sins of mankind, of people, of those who would come to him in faith. So he's enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God. You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. So he's saying, Lord, I know who you are. I know your power. I know where you are. I know that you are in charge. And I know, God, that that they hate you. That they hate you. In verse 17, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear the words of Shennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Hear what they say. Hear what they say. Now, God knows what they say. God knows what's going on, what's happening in their head. So what is it that Hezekiah is going to tell them? Lord, they're, these are evil people, wicked people. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations in their lands. They beat everybody they've come against. Verse 19 And they've cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So he says they've destroyed everybody and every false god that anybody else ever worshipped. They pulled them all down. So then he looks for deliverance. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. If you save us, God, then they'll know that you're God and they're not. So this is the call. So that God might be known. So God provides an answer. Verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, said to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Shennacherib, king of Assyria, This is the word that the Lord has spoken. She despises you. She scorns you. Who's she? The virgin daughter of Zion, Israel, the nation. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. So the Holy One of Israel, guys, this is a... This is a common phrase that's always going to refer back to the Messiah, to Jesus. The idea is that, that Jesus in, uh, in the book of Joshua, Jesus is seen to be the captain of the Lord's army. He's the one who fights God's battles. And we know this when we get to Revelation 19. You guys read the book of Revelation, right? Revelation 19, you have this thing called the battle of... Armageddon, right? And who fights that battle? Yeah, Jesus does. He don't need us. Says he wipes out the enemy by the word of his uh, the word of his mouth. Well, let me ask you: How did God create the heavens and the earth? What does the Bible say? He spoke, and it was right. So, what do you think he's got to do to have it uncreate? Speak again? Yeah, it's not going to be a hard hard fought battle. So he's saying, you're, you're picking a fight with the Holy One of Israel, with the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. That was always the picture. Israel was always supposed to be governed by her King, the, the King of David, the picture of Messiah. They've been looking for a King ever since. Jesus Christ came to His own. 
His own did not receive him. They rejected him. He bore their sin upon the cross, purged, made atonement, so that you and I now have a, a way. A path has been opened that we can follow him in salvation. We can follow him. We can take our cross daily and go after him. Put our faith and trust in him. What's the scripture say? We confess our sin. He does what? He's faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we call on the name of the Lord, what does the Bible say? Then you will be saved. If we confess the Lord with our mouth, what's the Bible say? You'll be saved. We, we follow him. We, we put our hope and trust in the king. It's the same king Israel is looking for. Our king, King Jesus, the Holy One. The Holy One, the Messiah. The one sent from God. So he lays out. This attack is against the Holy One of Israel. Verse 24. By your servants you have mocked the Lord. You have said, with my many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains. To the far recesses of Lebanon to cut down the tallest cedars. The choicest cypresses. To come to the most remote height. It's most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank water. To dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? What's God saying to Shennacherib? You only do what I let you do. You only won the battle because I let you win a battle. You remember Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar walking out in, in Babylon. He's walking around and he's looking at this big city he built. And he said, look at this kingdom that I have made, man. I am a stellar dude. And God says, uh, excuse me, you wouldn't have any of that if I didn't give it to you. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, no, no, no. I did this with my own hands. So God's like, okay, I'll show you. So he went crazy for seven seasons. His hair grew out long like mine. His fingernails got long. He looked like a wild person. He started eating grass. He literally lost his ever-loving mind for seven seasons. And when it was over, he was still king. How'd that happen? Because who gave him the kingdom? God did. When Nebuchadnezzar came back to his mind, you know what he did? Wrote Daniel chapter 4. You get a chance, read it. He said, whoa, put this decree out everywhere. Yahweh is God. It is his kingdom. And I'm a knucklehead. So those are good things to, to comprehend. He's saying to Shennacherib, Dude, you haven't done nothing. You've only accomplished the things that I've allowed you to accomplish. I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass. That you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants... Shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and tender grass, like grass on the, on the housetops blighted before it's grown. Hey, this is, this is all part of my purpose. You're just doing what I let you do. Verse 28, I know you're sitting down. You're going out, you're coming in, and you're raging against me. So God says to Shennacherib, look, I, I know you. I know when you sit down, I know when you're pondering, I know when you're thinking, I know when you're raging. I know it all. I see you. 
because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put a hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back by the way you came. So he's saying to Shennacherib, you're not going to put a foot in this city. I'm going to put a hook in your nose and a bit in your mouth and I'm going to send you back home. And I'm sure Sennacherib is like, there's no way I'm doing that. Especially now that you told me that's what's going to happen. There's no way I'm going to do that. He says, and this will be a sign for you. This year, you will eat what grows of itself. In the second year, what springs from that. Then in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again make root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. You're not touching any of these people. Not touching them. They're going to they're gonna eat what they grew this year, they're going to eat what they grew next year, and they're going to have another harvest after that. Yeah, you're not doing nothing. Go home. It would have been a good time for Shennacherib to pack up. Would have been a good time to say, you know, I think I'll just go back. Even though it admits that I put a hook in my mouth and a bit in my jaw, I'm going to go back. Verse 33, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or even set a siege mound against it. This army out there ain't gonna do nothing. They're not going to do a thing. By the way he came, the same way he will return. And he will not come into this city, declares the Lord. So in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, it said, God said, let there be light. And what happened? So if God says you're not coming into the city, what happens? You're not coming into the city. What if you're Moses and God says you're not going into the promised land? What happens? You're not going into the promised land. If, if God says to you, hiding in a hole from your enemies, if God walks up to you and says, hey, Mighty man of valor, you're going to lead your people to victory. What's going to happen? You're going to lead the people to victory. Well, I don't feel very brave. doesn't really matter. It's not your battle. It's God's. He's the one who fights it. Our part in the battle is to trust Him. Oh, trust Him. Trust Him with, with no matter what it looks like. Trust Him. I promise you that, that while we're struggling with the idea of how to trust God and, and, and what, is the, what is the point of the journey, He will bring you to a place where you will learn it. I don't know where the number is. For me, HIV was it. Oop. Well, I can't do nothing about that. Okay, Lord. But all the ones before that, all the little battles, I would say, I got it, I got it, I got it. And then one day I said, I don't got this. I don't have an answer. So God, this is your battle to fight. And how, whatever you do, I'm okay with. I'm okay. 
knelt at that couch in that single-wide mobile home in Midway Park, North Carolina, and told him, whatever you want, I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of fighting against you. I'm tired of the rebellion. I surrender. It's your, it's your way. Whatever you want to do. He'll get you there. I promise you. You don't have to wait till it becomes a 4x4 four four or a 6x6 six six or a big old tree falling on your head. You can choose it earlier. It don't have to be an army of 185,000 people outside the door. Right? It's just as easy to trust him on the little stuff, isn't it? As it is to trust him on the big. So he goes on. He says in verse 35, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake, for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out. Who was that? The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. So when they woke up the next day, the whole army was dead. Don't have to be afraid. If God is going to have you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, then you're going to walk through it. You'll have the strength for the next day. And you'll say, every night, I don't have enough strength for tomorrow. And then when you wake up in the morning, God will give you the strength to get up and keep going. I promise. You're not going to want to do it. Nobody does. Nobody wakes up and goes, oh, weehoo. Maybe Kathy will, I don't know. But when she broke her arm, she wasn't like that, just so you know. When she broke her arm, time number two, she was like, yeah, uh, she had her sit down with her pastor and asked him, what does this mean? And I said, means you broke your arm. That's all it means. It's no special sign from heaven. You have a battle in front of you and God will give you the victory. Just trust him and walk one day at a time. Because with the Lord, tomorrow could be the day you get delivered. For a year, I went to the same hospital all these other guys went to, and I checked in with the same doctors, and I went through the same bunch of tests, but I never got sick. Why? Because I'm holy? Come on, you guys know me. What, because I'm good? No, that ain't it. Especially if you know the rest of the story. Just because he's God. He's in charge. For a year, I went back and held the hand of men who were dying until they died. And then one day, I got a letter that said, we don't know what to tell you, but you don't have HIV anymore. Well, nobody knows what to do about that. Nobody knows. All I know is the battle's the Lord's. And if he had taken me there, he's just. He can do that. If that was my day, that's my day. One day my day will come. 2009, I thought it came on Pole Line Road when a truck hit me on a motorcycle. But apparently, I'm only on like life number eight. I got six more, seven more to go. So, I don't know what to tell you. How many guys you know hit a truck head on, flew through the air, landed in the grass, got up and talk about it? 
50 miles an hour, no helmet. Who fights the battle? God. If he wants me to walk away, what happens? I walk away. He don't want me to walk away, what happens? I don't walk away. Who's in charge? He is. And the sooner we learn to submit and trust him, I think the better off we are. Okay, Lord. The battle's yours. The battle's yours. We've got endless problems with our United States of America, don't we? You think you're going to solve them? Who's going to solve them? The Lord. If they're going to get solved, who's going to solve them? The Lord. How did he solve it for Hezekiah? What did Hezekiah do? Oh, funny how that is, huh? What did God say in Chronicles? He said, if my people who are called by my name will do what? Humble themselves and... Yeah. And then what else? And what else? Turn from their wicked ways. So there's repentance, there's putting on sackcloth, there's all the things we're talking about, right? Yeah, you want, if we want God to move, that's, that's, that's what, that's our part. Right? We pray. We bow the knee and we say, it's your battle, God. And He does it. And either He delivers with a mighty hand, or he takes me home, and I'm okay with both. It's, I'm all right. No matter no matter what it is, no matter how God chooses, I don't. I you know I may not like it, may not be great joy. You know I I remember when when we when Kathy and I went to the doctor, and the doctor told us that our youngest son was autistic. I was not super stoked about that. I was not. Super happy. I was, I was pretty bitter, angry at God. Why? Why has he got to be autistic? How come I'm not ever going to get to talk to him? You know, because that's how fear works, right? It tells you the worst. Doesn't usually match up to reality, but, but what I learned from Joe is how I am to God. I learned a lot from Joe. I would not learn the things I learned about my relationship with God if I didn't have Joseph in my life. And he can live with me forever. And after he's done living with me and God takes me home, he's going to live with his brothers. Or I'll come back and haunt them. <laughs> he's, he's out because we raised the boys to care about their brother. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes or no? Yes. Yeah, I'm my brother's keeper. That's what we do. We trust God and we let God do what God's going to do. And right here, hey, the angel of the Lord had it, didn't he? Then look what happens in verse 37. Then Shennacherib, king of Assyria, left. So he didn't die. God said, I'm going to put a hook in your mouth and a bit, a bridle, and you're going home. And after he gets up in the morning and there's no army, what do he do? I- I'm going home. God. I'm not going to give another speech. I'm not going to tell everybody about how I'm going to whoop them. I'm just going to go home. So Shennacherib went home. He lived in Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sharazir, his sons, struck him down with a sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Irshadon, his son, reigned in his place. So he goes back home and his own kids kill him. The Bible has certain little 
I don't know, hints that it gives us about things. Like, if you live by the sword, if you live your life as a warrior and you're fighting and killing everybody around you all the time, then what is going to be in your family? Fighting and war all around you. Because our little kids learn to walk where? In our footsteps, right? They just learn from us. So if you want to teach them something else, the Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. So if he sows to the flesh, he will of the flesh reap corruption, death. If he sows to the spirit, he will of the spirit reap everlasting life. Which one's better? That's not a trick question, right? When God stood before the people of Israel and he put blessing and cursing on two mountains. And he said, if you, if you disobey, if you rebel against me, you're going to die. If you follow me and you go with me, you're going to live. You get to choose. Two paths you can go by. Choose life. Follow me. That's the path that leads to life. When Jesus came for his disciples, what did he say to his disciples? Come, follow me. What are we supposed to be doing? Following him. When we run into a battle, whose is it? It's his. You let him fight it. You let him decide who's the victor. And trust him. It'll be okay. The first half of the book of Isaiah is all about trusting God. Trust him. Trust him. Trust him. Next week, what happens when Hezekiah hears something he doesn't like? He gets sick. And he says, ask Isaiah if I'm going to get better. And Isaiah says, no. You're going to die. What do we do when God says, I'm not going to deliver you? We'll be okay. Will we still trust him? That'll be for next week. You ready? So, let it be written. (laughs) So let it be done. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. Opportunity to study your word, Lord. Thank you for the truth of scripture, God. And I pray we just put our hope and trust in you, Lord. It's It's not a waste. It's not a waste to say, God, you got this. And I'm okay because you're my king. So whatever you have for me, whatever it looks like, if it's healing, praise the Lord. If it's bringing me home, praise the Lord. It doesn't make any difference because I'm yours. You are my master. And I belong to you. And however you want to... Lord, I ran my life and all I ever caused was hate, discontent, just, it was a wreck. And the day I bowed the knee and said, you are in charge, it's your way, I don't care about nothing else but you. Then everything in my life started to make sense. It wasn't always easy, but it was always good. Because God is good all the time and I'm a testimony of his goodness he is worthy of my trust of my faith for he is able to deliver 
And even if he doesn't, I will never turn my back on him. He is my king. God, I just pray that that's our heart's cry as we look to you. Especially this week, Lord, looking toward Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. You are the God who delivers. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.